I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, what's on this week's silver service platter tray? Well, Dan, I don't know whether it's the lockdown, but I think British confectioners have gone slightly mad. So you'd be familiar with the walnut whip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, well, what I've got here is um, mint whips, um, Nestle mint whips. They're walnut whip, but filled with mint. And then sitting next to them, I've got after eight mints filled with orange. Now, the after eight mint, I haven't had one because I only ever eat after eight mints after a candlelit dinner when I'm playing backgammon with Penelope Keith. Um, but I'm not really looking forward to it. Orange mint. So what, I don't know what they're doing, really. I don't know what they're playing at. But what we really need now is someone to make a Jaffa cake that's filled with walnut whip, and then we'll have come full circle. It sounds like you've gone through to some sort of alternative earth. You know when somebody wakes up and they find they're, on the, they're in an earth on the opposite side of the sun, where everything is just slightly different? Almost the same, but slightly different. So you've got your, your minty stuff and your orange things with those flavours that shouldn't be with those things. And that's I think what you're suggesting, Andy, is you're, in, maybe you're a doppelganger. In the Hexham branch of B&M, there's actually a rent in the time-space continuum that has allowed me to enter this second, you know, the, another world that's running parallel to ours. That's all I can think. They want to get that plastered over. <laughs> Or just put a nest, put some wiring over it. They used to warn us about that in the 1970s in those frightening government information films. Use a bit of WD-40, that always works. Yeah, as long as they don't use glue, otherwise it'll will just kick off. Yeah, God. <laughs> it doesn't, what's the point? What's the point, really? <laughs> so I know you see, the, the orange after eight mints, it says limited edition, which is probably a good thing, I think. I've actually had some, Harry. I had a shocking pound on because they weren't a pound, they were two pounds, but I was already at the... <sighs> automatic till by that by then the way they've combined mint and orange was a real shock as well i thought they were just going to be an orange version of after eights but there's actually mint in there as well so oh yeah see they've got mint who thinks who goes oh this mint would just be improved with a hint of orange <laughs> i finished the pack but that says more about me than, <laughs> more about me than the after eights. that says nothing that means nothing <laughs> any other lockdown thrills in snowy northumbria well, I'm, I'm pleased to say you know, it is very snowy, but I'm pleased to say that the, the, February the 14th is a special day, Dan, mm. um, as you'll know, mm. um, because in Sao Paulo, it is Button Football Day. Oh, excellent. Um, because it's the birthday of the inventor of Button Football, Geraldo de Court. Now, people are now going, what the bloody hell's Button Football? Because I think we've talked about it actually not on the podcast, but after the podcast was finished. Well, Button Football is a Brazilian game. Um, it was invented by Geraldo de Court in about 1922. And basically, it's like Subutio, but using buttons instead of the Subutio players. 
and you use a little piece of plastic or a ruler to press down on the button, which then shoots forward and hits the ball. And it's massively popular in Brazil. Um, and Geraldo de Cor was quite interesting. He patented the game in 1930 and he called it Celotex because that was the type of um, material that he used to put on the table. He recommended playing on Celotex, which I assume is a kind of vinyl, kind of vinyl tablecloth, I imagine. Um, and it's, I say, hugely popular across Brazil. Um, even the, the the top players are actually linked with Brazilian football clubs, like Flamengo have a have a have a button football team that play for that represent Flamengo. So it's uh, and uh, Santos and those sort of people. But he's quite interesting because he was an abstract painter and an actor. I don't know what sort of films he was in, but some of the titles were Male and Female, The Virgin and the Macho, and The Meat. These are all cartoons. Um, but maybe they sound less pornographic in Portuguese. I don't know. But anyway, so the 14th of February. And the interesting thing with button football is, apart from Brazil, it seems to be popular in only one other country, and that country is Hungary, where the game is not called football de Batau, but gom foki. Uh, it may be pronounced slightly differently in Hungarian. Um, and it's, I've become very fascinated by it, as you can tell, because you play it not with a ball, but with a dice. So you actually play it with a square ball. And it's the only thing that, I've, that I can't find anything to buy on eBay that's related to it, which is very disappointing. But there is a shop, an online shop in Hungary called Yatek, which has all the teams. And the teams are basically now they're like vinyl discs and you get a sticker to put on them, which has the club colours and a photo of the player. So I'm quite attracted by the 1953 Mighty Magyar, Magyar's team. Mm. Um, which you can buy. Is, is one of the buttons a bit tubbier than the others to be the Pushkas one? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's Pushkas. Well, the, the thing that I noticed, I watched a little film of it in Brazil and people combine, they create their own all-time 11 because, of course, you can put the stickers from various different eras all together in a team. So, you know, with Middlesbrough, you know, you could have, I don't know, Janinho, Wilf Mannion and Michael Ricketts or something, you know, all in the same team. <laughs> the dream. The dream, indeed, the dream. <laughs> I'm delighted to announce that we will be recording a podcast in Sao Paulo for next year's Button Football Centenary then. Oh, yes, I didn't realise that. Well, 1922, yes, you're right, Dan. Yeah. We should do that. I think we should, uh, I'm sure we can get funding from the Arts Council <laughs> or something like that. One of the films that I watched because there are female players, and one of the, one of the one of the women he was playing said that the the thing with it is it's more about delicacy than strength. Mm. I don't know if that was probably a, maybe a message to her husband as well as about the game. <laughs> Just like this podcast, delicacy over strength. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, how about London lockdown life? Any swan news? Uh, no swans. No, the lake in the park is frozen over. Uh, just the seagulls left now. They're tough lads out there at the moment, um, standing uh, on the frozen bits. I suppose the equivalent of you know Newcastle fans with their tops off at a winter home game. So I don't know. Maybe the swans have gone somewhere warmer, further south, like Surrey. Isle of White, someone like that. We, we have big news at WSC this month. We have finally done something we should have done years ago and uh, closed down, ho-ho. Now, we've, um, we've made public a writer's guide on our social media, setting out some advice about how to be uh, published in WSC. Previously, I used to say this in e- uh, emails to people when people got in touch, but the first time we now have a detailed guide online, mostly written by my colleague Tom. And um, our announcement about this was tweeted, it uh, was retweeted by the editor of Health and Efficiency, which I believe is a, is a naturist magazine, <laughs> um, saying that he might do the same thing. So has anyone ever sent any articles into both magazines? I wonder, maybe the same article, <laughs> except they changed the one sent to Health and Efficiency so that protagonist of that story was naked throughout, you know, like a, a day out in the Northwest Counties League, but au naturel. So um, get in touch with us if, you, if you've ever done that, or if you, if you sent them the wrong way around. If you sent us the one about being naked and sent them the one about the Northwest Counties League, then, and obviously neither of them would have got published then. But um, other than that, talking about um, chocolate and stuff, um, went to the dentist, got the all clear for another 12 months. So I do what I usually do when that happens, had a, a big sugar hit directly afterwards, big bar of chocolate um, directly in there. Discovered also that there are companies that do monthly subscriptions to international biscuits. You'll be interested in this, Harry, possibly. Um, Ooh, yeah. You can get about eight packs of biscuits from around the world uh, a month on subscription. You can indicate which ones you don't like or don't want and so on. Now, this would be great if we were still working in an office, WC office, and we could sort of spread the damage around a bit. But I think maybe I'd better not, otherwise I might not be able to fit through the door of the 
spare room from which I'm speaking now. But I, I like the I like the concept. Though. Also, I had a bit of a a blast from the past. Recently. We had a couple of emails from textile mills in India. We used to get these quite a lot one time because it meant for the Wakefield Shirt Company, whose old email address was wsc.com <laughs> so i always used to reply and give them the right email uh, and they've started appearing again recently a, a bit so I'd, I'd be writing back to my assume that wait well wakefield shirt company are still going i had to look online i suppose there'll always be people in wakefield who need shirts so i was glad to see this again also reminded me of when i um first moved into my flat um where i live now and it'd been empty for a bit so we got a new phone uh, installed and the first day i got a call from someone with a french accent asking for Hail snails. He said, is that hail snails? And it turned out he was a, a French restaurant in London. I thought they got through to a snail wholesaler. So I just sort of said no. And I kind of said, that's really strange. It's hail snails. And the phone went again about two hours later. It was a different person with a French accent also asking for hail snails. I thought, hello, <laughs> we've been assigned <laughs> we've been assigned a number that someone else has already had. So we have to get changed. That's hail, H-A-L-E, not H-A-I-L, like <laughs> hail the snail or, you know, behold colon the snail. There's probably a Mr. Hale who wondered if, if there was a business he could do, you know, and maybe thought, why not a rhyming one? So is there a, is there a wholesale to a French restaurant somewhere called Mr. Street's Horse Meat or Clegg's Frog's Legs? You know, I, I realize these are outdated archetypes of what French people eat, but I haven't been outside much in 10 months. So I'm sure things have changed a lot. <laughs> so do let us know if you're au fait. You get it? Yeah. With the world of French food wholesale. A different spelling, but perhaps Barry Hales could have gone into Hale Snails after his career. Well, he, he, still, he still could. I mean, there's, there's no reason why he couldn't get involved. He may have done all pails he could do, couldn't he? Buckets. Yeah. <laughs> Crystal Gales Snails. You should have said they're on their way. You should have, when they find up asking for the snails, you should have said, that yeah. they're on their way. I've sent them. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be there in four and a half months. <laughs> the free range. <laughs> free range snails. I've been mining late night television for old football documentaries and films I haven't seen. I recently subscribed to something called BritBox and looked for its football content, which consisted of Murphy's Mob, which I didn't see first time around. And I spent the first episode of that trying to identify which ground it was in. And I'm happy to say it was Vicarage Road, though they later to move to the baseball ground I've seen in subsequent series, which is an interesting move. And then I saw the start, but I haven't watched the rest yet, of those glory, glory days. I was wondering if either of you remembered that film, because it begins with a long shot of the press box at White Hart Lane, where it looks to me like a couple of the journalists are drinking cans of special brew. I wondered if anyone could confirm that or not. And Richard Wilson plays a miserable Scottish journalist. That's as far as I got on that one. Do either of you remember that film? Um, Yeah, I do. Was that written by Julie Welsh? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I do actually, remember yes, it. Yeah, because yeah. it's got Danny Blanchflower yeah, do, in it as yeah. well. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, I'll watch the rest with interest and I'll zoom in and see if it is special brew that the journalists are having. And then one exciting night, bear with me, I watched some of the Alex Ferguson story from ITV 1998. And there's a scene where he phones the groundsman ahead of a European game with Monaco. And he says about the old Trafford pitch, I don't care how much water you put on the fucking thing. Just get every bit of water you can. Get it fucking flooded all the time. It'll suit us perfectly. Flood it. And apart from enjoying the image of the groundsman having to procure water in Manchester by any means necessary, (laughs) I started thinking about things managers and clubs have done to their pitches to gain advantage over opponents. So I wonder if you two could recall any examples of that, Andy. Uh, well, Graham Souness, the absolute rascal that he is, um, <laughs> shortened Rangers' pitch before they played Dinamo Kiev in the European Cup to make it harder for Kiev's wingers. And Rangers went on to win the tie that was in the European Cup. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure several of the managers have shortened pitches you know, to make it harder for opponents mm-hmm. who like to sort of spray it around a bit. But Souness, in his current role as a, as a, what is it, a sort of clinically sour pundit, uh, Recently suggested that Villa had deliberately let their grass grow to make it harder for Liverpool ahead of that that seven two win early in the season. And a member of Villa's ground staff then calls Sooners uh, Eddie Mills of Villa's ground staff calls Sooners uneducated and clueless for his comments. So he presumably said this from a safe distance away. Um, so I suppose <laughs> Sooners won't be invited to present the trophies uh, at the Groundsman of the Year Awards. We get sent emails about this every year. I don't know what the trophies are, like silver sprinklers or something. Um, I wonder if they have a ritual later on in the awards where everyone wears like a square of, of turf on the head and they cite some curse about whiny managers. Harry? Well, uh, the water in the pitch, of course, was uh, Stan Cullis did that when, when Wolves played Honved in that game, which people say started the European Cup. He, he watered the pitch very, very heavily. I think they even watered it at half-time as well. 
because they reasoned that the a, a heavy pitch with the Hungarian team obviously passed the ball along the ground, whereas Wolves favoured a more direct British approach, and and it would slow Honved down. Indeed, it did because I think Wolves probably were two nil down at half time, maybe, and came back to win three two. I think he also thought that the heavy pitch with the because uh, the, the Hungarians wore a kind of modern football boot rather than the old fashioned British. Um, like that looked like an army boot with studs in it, um, but it would that it wouldn't suit them. They wouldn't be able to stand up on it, and also that they, it would tire their legs as well. So that so he did that too. I mean, another person who was notorious for it was John Beck at Cambridge United. Um, I remember going there for an FA Cup game with Middlesbrough. Must have been about 1991, 92, and the entire center of the pitch was covered in sand and then the wings were the, were incredibly rutted like a kind of plowed field and i remember one bloke sort of standing behind us looking at the pitch and he said if you think it's bad now wait till the tide comes in <laughs> Issue 407 of When Saturday Comes is out now. It has another excellent letters page. Andy, which letters did you enjoy that extra little bit? Uh, well, there's a letter from Matthew Rudd who says that the TV series Drop the Dead Donkey once had a character who's a, a sports presenter who'd been a goalkeeper then had a bad game which had traumatised him. And they used real footage of the of the what to show this. of one The one league appearance of a goalkeeper called Tony Bell who made a bad mistake. He's playing for Newcastle against Spurs and he made a bad mistake that led to a goal and a 3-0 defeat for Spurs and he never played again. So they cut in on the TV show, they cut in closer footage of the actor wearing sideburns, like 70 sideburns and stuff to make it look like it was him and it was a fake new commentary by uh, Kenneth Wollstenholm. But I only hope that, that Tony Bell wasn't uh, watching. But the photo we used in, with the letter actually, um, his photo of Tony Bell is... Um, is signed by Tony Bell as well, rather, I suppose, poignantly, because he wouldn't have realised at that point when he's signing photos of himself that he wasn't going to play again. And, but that leads me on to the second letter, which is also about a goalkeeper, and quite a traumatic story from Des Cooper, who says in relation to an article uh, we had on Paul Cooper, no relation to the previous issue, that he once got Paul's autograph, Paul Ipswich goalkeeper, ahead of a whole Ipswich pre-season game. When, um, but then Paul ran off to his goal with a pen still in his hand. So Des then, who was, he was, other players were coming out the tunnel, and he wasn't able to get any other autographs as he didn't have a pen because Paul Cooper had, got, had gone off with his pen. Paul realised, ran back with a pen, but it was too late. Nightmare. He could have got Steve McCall's signature <laughs> or Kevin O'Callaghan's, but he was thwarted. You can imagine he'd still wake up in the night and say, no, Kevin, okay, no, please just, oh, he's gone. Terrible. <laughs> And Harry, any that passed a few minutes well for oh, yeah. you? No, just say about the Tony Bell. I'm pleased to see that he's described as hapless in the photo caption. And he, does, <laughs> he does look like he's entered a kind of Paul McShane from Heidi High lookalike competition as well. He's got the most bizarre hair. Anyway, well, I, I particularly like I liked a letter that obviously was about it was about my column, um, which is about the, the Spanish equivalent of a non-league paper. Thomas Sargent kindly writes in that there is uh, there is such a thing as particularly in the Basque country, which. It is called La Cantera Deportiva, and it covers all the the Secunda B games in the Basque country. So certainly next time, or if I get in the day in the times, it's hard to imagine when we can travel again. If I'm in San Sebastian or somewhere like that, I shall certainly uh, I'll certainly pick up a few copies of that. It does look spectacularly good. So thanks for that. In the absence of being allowed to travel, you could just make up your own version with pencil, ruler and lined notepaper as you would have done when you were a child. One of the, a John Bull printing set, which yes. I still have, obviously, <laughs> lying around. <laughs> yes, I could just do that and just make up the scores. Well, it is your birthday soon. As well, well, it is. That's true. And it's a, it's a, it's a, big, it's a, big, it's a milestone. <laughs> that's a come and get me plea in football <laughs> parlance for presents to be sent via when Saturday <laughs> <to> Harry. <laughs> Harry, any other letters you want to mention? There's a there's a good letter about as well about this sort of football on television thing which has been running for some while about a, a football match that appears in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy the the, the oh. Alec Guinness TV adaption and that it's it, it says Ipswich are playing Barry Davis is commentating Arnold Murin John Walk and Paul Mariner who Davis names as his man of the match are all mentioned but what game is it I'm sure that George Smiley would probably be able to work it out over the course of about <laughs> 600 pages. <laughs> 
<laughs> As mentioned, issue 407 of the magazine is out now. Andy, tell us about some of the other contents in the magazine. Well, we've got a piece by a football scout on how the lockdown has changed his job, and the compl- apart, aside from obviously the complications of getting into the ground. And he says he's used to going to games in front of almost no crowd as he watches a lot of uh, under-23 matches where, as, as he says... Um, where you can hear every last syllable the centre-half screams at a winger for once again not making an effort to track the opposing fullback. He, he's he's an opposition scout, so he, he goes to watch um, the future opponents of the club, uh, club he works for. But he also says he thinks the way games are being played has changed, been changed because of no crowds. That um, quote from the article says, Players seem to be finishing with less anxiety and defenders don't seem to be as aggressively throwing themselves into opposing players both of which he, uh, perhaps helping to produce more uh, more goals than previously. The object lesson feature this month, uh, where it's a regular feature about a, a football-related item, is about a um, Ray Vesey writes about a discoloured chunk of concrete he picked up from the terrace at the Old Valley after Charlton's final game there before it closed. And Ray says it's been in a, in a bed under his box for 36 years, thinks maybe he'll set it in his garden wall. But we've since heard from a, a Charlton fan who thinks the club museum may be interested in it, so um, on, interested in, in Ray's lump. So um, more on that if, if we have it. Maybe they're going to reconstruct the, the old terracing inside the club museum. Also have a piece by um, Julian McDougall, Notts County fan, and how he came to support them, not Forrest, an indicator that as a, the sort of the random way sometimes you can end up supporting a certain club. Really, it was that his dad noticed that on match days there's more free parking spaces at County Hall, which is between the two grounds, when County played than when Forest played. So they, went, they tried County once, then he got hooked. County finished ahead of Forest that year, mid-70s, but then the next year Forest appointed Brian Clough. So if he'd waited a year, maybe he might have ended up being a County Forest fan. Would he have been happier? Who's to say? But um, it shows the, yeah, the, the random way support can, can develop. Um, in the reverse of last month's issue, we've got Harry's column this month, it's guest written by you, Dan, while Harry um, did the match of the month, which is a, uh, I have to say, a fairly grim excursion, is the end of the kind, <laughs> to the riverside. It was, it was worse than that. <laughs> I, I, I brightened it up. <laughs> back on Northern Rail, Harry. Back on nationalised Northern Rail. Back on nationalised Northern Rail, which for some reason a journey a journey from, from where I live to Middlesbrough is actually 72 miles, but for some reason takes two hours and ten minutes and involves changing trains <laughs> twice. Northern Powerhouse. Ha! Not as long time since anyone said Northern Powerhouse sarcastically, so I'm, I'm glad to do that. Um, yes, uh, it was I, I, when I got there, I met an old Guardian colleague of mine, Michael Walker, and he said to me, greeted me with the words, "Ah, oh, you've turned up just to see an easy home win then. And of course, it, it was a, that's not the way that it turned out, even though Birmingham, I think, hadn't won since, I don't know, probably since Paul McShane was on TV, in fact, or Penelope Keith, and had a striker who had been substituted at halftime the last two games and been given a vote of confidence by his manager. So guess who scored and guess who won? Hmm. <laughs> Don't want to spoil it. For the column, I took inspiration from being at Dunfermline's East End Park an hour early, which is their press box protocol during this time, which gave me the chance to look opposite from the main stand to the graveyard behind the stand opposite and watch proceedings there for a while. And then I began to think about other great views from football grounds that I've enjoyed over the years and have distracted me from many a dull match. The mountains behind the wrecks at Aloha's ground, the trains passing Wraith Rover's ground, and then being high up in Valley Parade, looking at the minarets and old mill towers, and then the wonderful view from the very top of St. James Park in the away end. You can't see the game, but it's fantastic <laughs> to look down on, on, the, on the Tyne Valley. So we would invite uh, listeners to write in with their own favourite views of things from outside the ground. There are a few grounds that I've been in where you can actually see a, a sort of a, 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 an amateur game going on on another pitch, and it always <laughs> yeah. seems more entertaining than the game that you've paid to see. Well, at Griffin Park, which is obviously fairly close to Heathrow, they had KLM Dutch Airline advertisement advertise on the roof of one of the stands, and I did some find myself wondering because a plane you know goes overhead fairly close um if a plane was to explode overhead how long would it take for the debris to, f- to fall would you have time to get out of the way um so I'd, if, I'd, if i was ever in the position of doing the pa at brentford i think i might have asked that as a question maybe at half time or maybe during a game in a quiet moment just you know give people something to ponder uh, while, while they're waiting for a throne to be taken uh, from fulham stevenage road stand the old stand you can look, look over across the other stand the eric miller stand and you can see sails on boats going down the river sometimes. And um, I remember somebody, when Newport were playing in, restarted in non-league, it's obviously early 90s, 
is the Hellenic League, I think. I remember one of the supporters saying there were at least one, maybe two grounds where you could see um, behind the away, the, 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 this of end where the Newport fans were, the away fans, you could see uh, uh, badgers coming out in the fields behind the, <laughs> behind the ground by about quarter to five. Because they've been disturbed by the fact that slightly more people than normal at the, at the local football stadium, trying to get in without paying, probably. Well, they could just tunnel in. And they probably could as well. You wouldn't, you wouldn't argue with a badger, would you? I was, I was going to ask you, Harry, about views from Northern League grounds, but the main view from the game we went to back when we were allowed to, and the Northern League existed, the main view was of some lads on scramble bikes. Boys on, a, boys on scramble bikes on a patch of waste ground <laughs> yeah. there was there were a few piebald horses as well it's like something from a ken loach film <laughs> there's a few with cemeteries i mean at the uh, sunderland rta there's a cemetery at one end um in a, in a, but normally now just surrounded by sort of uh, housing estates but occasionally people come out of the from the garden into the ground which i quite like as well to remonstrate yeah. sometimes there's been remonstrations with the players for using foul language my children are playing on the trampoline they don't want to hear this <laughs> Jackpot tickets, pound a goal, draw at half time, win £500 yours tonight. Jackpot tickets, pound a goal, draw at half time, £500 prize draw, get your hats and scarves and pin badges, your hats and scarves and pin badges, get your hats and scarves and pin badges, pin badges, hats, scarves, hats and scarves and pin badges. Programs, programs. Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, roll at half time. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Right, Link C Regent, Steve Guppy, Short Corners, and it's landed on British Managers in Asia. Andy, what was that fresh, freshly delivered topic bring to mind for you? I don't know what that noise I did was. (laughs) It's it's quite specific, that wheel that you've got. Well, increasingly yeah. so as the weeks go on. <laughs> right, well, I'll, 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 I'll see what I can do, Dan, with this. Um, <laughs> the top of your head. Um, the, yeah, there was a period, of course, when the FA used to supply coaches for national teams of some Commonwealth countries. It was quite a, a thing that went on for quite a while, Asia and Africa. Um, but hopefully doing more than just exhorting players to, to put it in the mixer or, you know, when in doubt, get rid. Um, German FA had similar relationships. A few places, hence Bert Troutman, a uh, German keeper who was with Man City for a long time, was coach of several different national teams, including uh, Burma and Pakistan. But those days, the FA sending coaches overseas are gone. Now, there's only um, one, uh, Jamie Day, who's in Bangladesh. He's the only British coach of an Asian national team at the moment. In the past, uh, Mick Lyons, former Everton defender of the 70s, no relation to me that I used to say he was to avoid getting picked on by the hard kids at school. He, <laughs> I used to say that he... I didn't claim that he was like my brother or anything. I used to keep it fairly vague, saying he was like a cousin of my dad's and I only met him three times. I thought that sounded more believable. Anyway, it worked. Um, it probably still would work, actually. But um, after a, a spell that... He's manager at Grimsby, Mick Lyons, for a bit. A, a spell that I think Grimsby fans would say was was disappointing. They might use a shorter word. <laughs> He had two separate and presumably quite lucrative periods as coach of Brunei, uh, owned by the Sultan. He used to be described as the world's richest man. I remember the only thing you ever hear about the Sultan of Brunei is the world's richest man. I think that's now Elon Musk, isn't it? Or possibly Gary Lineker is on a fairly hefty wage at the BBC, I think. But Mick Lange has followed uh, at the national team of Brunei by his former Grimsby teammate, Dave Booth who over the last 20 years or so has had a fantastic career working all across Asia with national sides and club sides, almost always in work. He's had about 15 or 17 different jobs, presumably mostly fairly successful as well, I think. Um, his first one overseas was at a team called Ashanti Gold in Ghana, which came when he was recommended by um, Bobby Charlton, one of whose companies worked as consultants for the, the gold mining company who funded the club. I'm not sure what they would be consulting Bobby Charlton about, really, but... How to keep the ball low when you're shooting from distance, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Dave Booth, anyway. Uh, yeah, he, I, I imagine Dave Booth has become a byword in parts of South and Southeast Asia now. It's an expression for a man who can do a job, you know, a, a Dave Booth. <laughs> maybe amended to more something like a Dav Boot. He, he could do a Dav Boot. Um, he's probably spent almost his entire adult, adult life wearing shorts. 
thinking about. They, you know, standing on a touch. They have quite leathery skin by now, but I expect he's got some sort of moisturizing regime. Chris Coleman um, at uh, Hebein China Fortune in 2018-19, the only British coach in the Chinese Super League, aside from Howard Wilkinson, who's briefly in Shanghai in 2004. Chris Coleman, one of the very few managers I can do a two-word impression of. Should I do it now? Oh, yeah. Okay, you can always cut this. Um, more than once, he used to, when he was manager of uh, in, in, in the UK, you'd often see him striding up and down the touchline, sort of disagreeing with the decision. And you could sometimes see he was saying, fucking joke. <laughs> fucking joke. <laughs> That's my Chris Coleman impression. It may, it's just a bloke with a Welsh accent. Really, but <laughs> fucking joke. Dave Mackay, uncle of your hairdresser, Dan, I think. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. Or is, he, is, he, is she your stylist or your hairdresser? Uh, let's say stylist, I like that. He, he, of course, won the league as manager of Derby, but otherwise wasn't especially successful here. But then he had a quite a long career, years in, in football in Kuwait, and also coached the national team of Qatar before Qatar ruled the world uh, for a few years in the 90s. And uh, quite a few coaches spent most of their careers moving, British coaches, moving around the Middle East, um, especially the Gulf states. I guess it's pretty good money. I mean, often played in quite a weird environment, though, I think. I mean, you see highlights of these games from the Gulf countries on TV. And, of course, these very modern stadiums, there's almost no one there, like kind of non-league level crowds, which isn't a surprise, I suppose, because, I mean, apart from Saudi Arabia, they've got pretty small populations. But I suppose for some managers, it's preferable to sort of just, you know, ambling around clubs in uh, in League Two. One other thing I should mention, uh, Mike Pedrick, former England fullback, uh, coached uh, in Malaysia and Kuwait. But I mention him mainly, it gives me the chance to point out that he's currently the over-65s European Taekwondo champion. Oh, So well done, Mike. Yeah. Fair play to Mike. He, he always looked like yeah. he, he looked like he'd be handy in a fight. Yeah, I think, I think he still is. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> If you listen to this, Mike, well done. Exactly. Great. Don't, don't listen to what Harry says. I think you've done really well. When, 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 thing, when things kick off at the old age pensioners' discount. <laughs> He'll be good at conflict de-escalation, or possibly escalation, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a fine line. <laughs> and Harry? Well, it reminds me of um, my mum and dad. My, my, my dad worked out in Dubai uh, in, the, in the 70s, and they were in the glamorous nights club at the Sheraton Hotel, having dinner and watching a cabaret at which the top of the bill was Keith Harris. In those days, possibly not with Orville, possibly with Cuddles, the blue-faced orangutan. And they looked, and then Keith, so he came on, and then he, he started trying to start a bit of sort of banter, that kind of comedian, the old school comedian banter with members of the audience. And my mum and dad realised that the member of the audience that he'd picked on was Don Reavy, <laughs> uh, who was apparently not amused. Hard to imagine that anyone would be not amused by Keith Harris, I know. But there we are. So that was Don Reeve because he was out in the UAE from, I think, 77 to 80. Famously left the England job in a, in, a, in what was regarded at the time as a scandalous manner. Quite, as Andy said, quite a few uh, British managers who spent time in the Gulf. One quite interesting one, George Armstrong. We, I think I mentioned him last time as a, a member of the Geordie diaspora. Um, yeah. And he was the Arsenal midfielder. And he was a, quite a successful coach. But he managed. he also managed the Kuwait national team. But the funny thing was that he only ever managed two other teams apart from Q8, and that was NDB Town and FK Mjolnir, who are a lower division uh, Norwegian team who play in Narvik, north of the Arctic Circle, and are named in honour of Thor's hammer. Um, anyway, so uh, so he was there. And uh, another interesting character as well, one of those managers who seems to have just worked abroad nearly all the time, was a guy called Danny McLennan. And Danny McLennan started his career as player-manager of Berwick Rangers. Um, he took over at Sterling Albion and was, most people felt, unjustly sacked by Sterling Albion in the, probably in the sort of early 70s. And he went out and he, he managed, during his career, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Jordan, Bahrain, Mauritius, Fiji, Malawi, the Philippines, as well as club sides in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Palestine, Norway, Malta and India. Well, an interesting thing with Danny McLennan, apart from his, it was that his wife, Ruth, was a professional opera singer. And when he was coach of Jordan, she couldn't get any opera singing gigs. So she took up tennis and actually ended up as the women's singles champion of Jordan. So he was a, quite, a, quite a character. And the other interesting thing was that Bill McGarry, we mentioned Ferenc Puskas early on, or we, Andy alluded to a tubby Hungarian from the 1953 team. I assume it was Ferenc Puskas. Um, <laughs> that that uh, Saudi Arabia's manager... Um, Ferenc Puskas was the manager of Saudi Arabia, and he was succeeded by Bill McGarry, 
quite a, a ch- change in approach there, I imagine. <laughs> and Bill McGarry was manager there. And then also there's an interesting guy who had, who had been manager of Saudi Arabia called George Skinner, who was the first man- Englishman to manage Saudi Arabia back in 1969. He was a striker who played mainly for Gillingham and Brighton, I think. Um, he, he'd also been in charge of Jordan. But then in 1972, he went to Iran as the assistant to Franco Farrell when Franco Farrell probably best remembered i mean he was he played he was a manager of leicester city very successfully but sadly he's probably best remembered for being fired by manchester united for not being matt busby um, but franco farrell was very successful as manager of iran and they won the iran they won the gold medal at the asia games and he got them through to the montreal olympics in 1976 and at the same time that he was manager of the iranian national team there was a guy from southport called alan rogers who was manager of persepolis and he won four league titles, Iranian league titles with Persepolis. I mean, I don't think he played any league football in England, but he is the uncle of the of Lorraine Rogers, who was the chairwoman of Tranmere Rovers. Um, and I think also at that time, somewhat bizarrely, not connected, but it was that Alan Whittle played in the Iranian Football League, which is a quite a contrast as well, I think. But Franco Farrell was quite interesting because he, he he quit the Iran job to take over at Torquay United. And then later on, he left football to run a nursing home in Devon. And he was apparently heavily involved in a Catholic society, uh, not, not Opus Dei, but the Society of Vincent St. Paul, whose members seek sanctification through personal service to the poor, which I think, well done, Franco Farrell, far better than going on the after-dinner circuit making jokes about <laughs> Rodney Fern. <laughs> wow. I, I'm still moved by the revelation that Keith Harris had an animal previous to Orville because I had no idea about that. Cuddles was, of course, very jealous of Orville and his his catchphrase became, I hate that duck. Well, in fact, Cameron Carter in, in his TV review in the new issue uh, mentions uh, about being distracted during COVID and wandering around and trying to remember whether it's Keith Harris or Orville who's died. <laughs> It's strange, isn't it? It's like it's like some we it's like the universe is telling us something. Shut up, probably. The the other interesting thing was in India, obviously with Britain's history with India, there've been quite a lot of um English coaches who've gone out there, um, including Bob Houghton, who obviously was very successful at Malmo and then was coach of India from two thousand and six to two thousand eleven. He was pretty successful, although he was criticized in the by some Indian journalists for sticking too loyally to a core of players. But given that one of them was the going midfielder, Climax Lawrence, uh, I sort of sympathise with Houghton. Um, but a previous uh, man who managed India was a Geordie named Bob Bootland. I can't find out anything about him having played football in England at all. He went, he was, he went out to Goa on holiday in 1977 and pretty much never came back, which was, you know, was a common thing in the 70s, as anyone who's watched the BBC series The Serpent will know. And he somehow ended up as coach of a club in Goa called Dempo Sports Club. And he won the Rover Cup with them and then ended up coaching the full India international team. He married a Goan school teacher and lived in Goa all his life, lived in India all his life. And when he died, I think he died in 2007, former players queued up to pay tribute to him. And one of them said, Bob swore on the Bible of fitness. (laughs) (laughs) It's the fanzine, not the programme. The fanzine, not the programme. One pound. The fanzine, it's not the programme. Fanzines, one pound. Fanzines, one pound. It's not the programme, it's the fanzine. Give the gift of a When Saturday Comes subscription in 2021 and the lucky recipient will be reminded of your generosity throughout the year. We'll even send a letter with the first issue complete with a message from you. Sign up now at shop.wsc.co.uk One pound, one pound fanzine. It's not the programme, it's the fanzine. One pound the fanzine, one pound the fanzine. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from the wonderful website 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Uh, I've gone for Team Mao Marvia, Marvellous Team by Rick, Rock and Robin, possibly not their birth names. Um, Team Mao Marvia about uh, Corinthians, celebrates Corinthians of Brazil winning the 1977 Sao Paulo State Championship. Corinthians are nicknamed Team because they're a very old club, uh, just like I think Nuremberg, Germany, are known as Der Club because they're one of the, the early clubs. Um, Corinthians, probably the biggest 
of all the South American clubs named after the 19th century English amateurs. There are quite a lot of clubs of those kind of names. Um, there are lots of clubs called Wanderers, for example. But um, Corinthians is also the most popular team in Sao Paulo. I think generally reckoned to be the second most popular in Brazil after Flamengo, but not the most successful. It went a long time without winning anything. Um, this record, possibly why this record came out, this, this state title was their first title in 23 years at the time. The state leagues, of course, used to be a big deal in Brazil before the National League was created in the early 70s. They have since won the National League several times and the Copa Libertadores as well, which is only just recently won by their, their big local rivals, uh, Palmeiras, which we, we may have seen last week in a, a, a terrible game, if anybody saw it. That was kind of lively at the end, but um, awful for, for 90 minutes. But yeah, uh, Timão Marvia. And Harry, what was your choice this time? Well, co- coincidentally, given the given our, our subject matter, I've gone for the Kuwaiti national team with their um, slightly crackly, I must say, "Our Camel is a Winner," which was recorded uh, by for the nineteen eighty two World Cup, which people would remember Kuwait played in an infamous game against France when France scored their fourth goal. Um, the Kuwaiti players thought that it was offside and Crown Prince Farhad of Kuwait invaded the pitch and somehow pressured the referee, who was a Soviet called Miroslav Stupa, into reversing his decision and disallowing the goal. Didn't make much difference because France absolutely hammered them. Um, but it did make a difference to the career of Miroslav Stupa, who was, I think, banned from refereeing. Not sure what happened to Crown Prince Farhad. He's got a lot of money and oil, so probably, you know, maybe a small fine for him. My own choice this week is March of the Champions for Wrexham in 1978. I thought this was apt in the week that they were taken over finally by those two actor blokes, as they'll be known forever by me because I can't remember their names. You mentioned early, Harry, those 1970s creepy small documentary films to stop children climbing into pools of cesspit water and things. Uh, there's a sort of air to, of that creepy haunted generation as our friend Bob Fisher calls it element to this song I think this is the B-side the March of the Champions by Vic Blackwell Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Matt Hibbert from the This Is Tranmere podcast. Well, it started, like most you know, great ideas, as a drunken chat in a nightclub um, or a pub back in the summer of 2016. I do The two lads I do it with, Paul Harper and Jake Keogh. Uh, at the time, both worked for the club. It was when we were in the, the National League. And Paul Harper, who was the, he was the communications media guy, you know, did all the live tweets, you know, all like that. He did everything. You're like signing videos, all the media stuff, social media. And then um, and a guy, and 
I knew a lad who worked in the club shop and he came to me. We were on a night out in Birkenhead in the summer of 2016. And he was like, because I do, I've been doing podcasts for years, like music podcasts. I'm a DJ um, and I've done a few other like podcasts. And he said, a guy at the club wants to start a podcast. You'd be perfect for it. Should I put you in touch? And you know what you like when you're in the, I was like, yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And he was like, here's his number. Give him a DM a, a message. I woke up the next day, thought nothing of it. And I had a DM off Tramia Rovers on Twitter. I said, try me over and I'll follow you. And I thought, oh God, what's happened here? And it was Paul. And he said, you know, I want to start a podcast for the 2016-17 season. I've been told you're, you know, the man to speak to about it. So I went in, we had a chat and it was very simple because he had he had a, uh, done some local radio. So we both had, you know, a grounding in podcasting and broadcasting, so to speak. And it was very quick. We set it up. And the first couple of episodes, I said, I think what people would want would be to interviews with the players, but not, you know, like the press do interviews with the players. And I think when players, no matter what level, whether it's National League or Premier League, when they're in front of the press or, you know, reporters, they're all, they almost go into that media mode and they speak, you know, cliches and they don't give anything away. Where I said, if what we'd like to do is say, look, this is off the record, so to speak. You can swear, we'll bleep it out. We want to hear, you know, the, the funny story, the true story. So we did teammates you know, the old Soccer AM segment, and we had big Steve McNulty, the, you know, our big old centre-half who was playing for at the time. And he came on for episode one, and it just got a fantastic reaction. Because it was exactly what people want to know. It was funny stories, hearing about the lads in the dressing room and all stuff like that. And from there, we went and we did, we did two years while we were in the National League of us being the official podcast. We even started doing weekly live shows on a Wednesday from inside the ground and we get players on, other staff. We do like an hour live every Wednesday. And then Paul left the club the same week we got promoted in 2018. Um, and we asked the club, could we keep our, you know, the feed and all the stuff, but we will become unofficial now that we, you know, Paul was no longer working for them. And they graciously said yes. So we kept all our followers, all our socials. And we've been the unofficial podcast now for the last three years. This is our, yeah, so our fifth year, our third season, or sixth year. So we try and keep it as positive as possible. But, you know, when we like at the start of the season, losing five on the run, fifth bottom, it's, it's hard to put a positive spin on things, isn't it, sometimes? When did you become a Tranmere fan? My first ever game was, again, I, if you, if you, your first game you ever go to is a dire nil-nil draw on a wet Tuesday night in October against Grimsby. That might not give you the, mm-hmm. that goosebump feeling that you need. My first ever game was the Leyland Daft Cup final in May 1990 against Bristol Rovers on a lovely sunny day. And we won 2-1. And so I thought, oh my God, this is great, this Tramie Lark. You get to go on a, co- a coach trip. I was like five, coach trip on a sunny day, win a cup. It, sign me up for this. <laughs> Little did I know <laughs> what I was signing up for um, the next 30 years. It was then, we went, in fact, we then got promoted in 1991 into the championship in the playoff final. And then from 1991 until we got promoted in 2018, we didn't, win a single thing we had no forward momentum whatsoever we only ever went down so it was 27 years of um absolute just da- a downward spiral so yeah thanks for that grand <laughs> it just shows you how wrong an outsider's perception of Tranmere is obviously i've seen you struggle and go down through the leagues but there's always been something quite cool about Tranmere to me i don't know if it's because of half man half biscuit because of the yeah. Wir- the Wirral shirt the pat nevin john aldridge team the friday night football the great documentary made in the late 70s or 80s that i watched on youtube had had that even though it's all about the misery and the, the difficulty of keeping the finances going yeah and the 40 minutes documentary isn't it the bbc yeah, yeah. one yeah there's something about Tranmere, but clearly you've lived through relegations, pain, <laughs> disappointment, ownership struggles, and all the rest. And yet, from the outside, I think something cool about them. And it's the admiration of you not going across the Mersey and supporting the Reds or the Blues that I think outsiders admire. Yeah, it's always we've always had that chip on our shoulders, not quite right. I think the whole of the Wirral as a whole, but Birkenhead, in a way that you know, Liverpool is a cosmopolitan, you know, amazing city, and it is amazing, mm. and it's just over the. And we've always felt that we get. Not the thin end of the wedge, but not forgotten about either. But like weird, when all like bad things happen to Liverpool, we always think that the same things are happening to us in Birkenhead, but it's even worse mm. because we're like f- forgotten about, and we get called wolves, woolly backs by by scouts. They like to call us woolly backs. Goes back a, a long way. I'm not sure why, but we just get called wolves. But this, in recent years as well, especially there's been a, a bit more. We sort of lost, during those 27 years, obviously we had the, the great cup runs under Aldo and we had the Johnny King team in the early 90s who we knocked on the door of the Premier League for three years, lost in the playoffs. But other than that, 
we've been, you know, like I say, a slow downward spiral, no investment in the club and just everything was bad. And you can see why, you know, if you were a young lad, unless you were dragged there by your dad or your granddad or family, there was no reason. It wasn't fun to go and you know, support Trammy and go to the game. It was a dull, depressing place to go. And in a weird way, it almost took us being relegated to National League to go, right, this is our rock bottom. I remember we officially recognised our rock bottom as we were beaten. The week, the great Johnny King, our, our manager, there's a statue outside of him now. Actually, you know, it was unveiled. And then he passed away a few months later. And it was the week he passed away, our greatest ever manager who nearly took us to the Premier League. And we got beat at home in the National League by Welling United 2-1. And that is universally recognised as our lowest ever point. And then from that moment on, we kicked on. And it was like, right, we've reached rock bottom. And there was like a groundswell of support and everyone came together. We lost the playoff final the following year. Finished, I think we got like 95 points and came second to Lincoln. It was something bonkers like that. And the following year, we won the playoffs. And then the following year, we won the League Two playoffs. And the whole club came together. And it was this really thing of, you know, we are Tramia, we're proud. If you want to go and support Liverpool Everton, go and do it. But, you know, if we are from Birkenhead, we're Birkenhead. This is the club of, this is Wirral's club. And it's a shame. One of the big shames is that we no longer have Wirral on our shirt. It was, Wirral Borough Council was the sponsor. And a load of, there's always been, the Wirral's a, a strange place in that, uh, probably a bit like Edinburgh in a way, that you've got huge affluent areas of incredibly rich people on one side, like the west of the Wirral, like Coldy, West Kirby and Raby and places like that. And then you've got like Prenton, Birkenhead, Tramia, which is, you know, like, there's some real poverty mm. and it's that thing. And the, the richer side, the more affluent, I've always had a bit of a bee in the bonnet about Tramia. Yeah, you know, they don't like it. They don't like football. And they didn't like that the, the council sponsored us. And it was like, what a waste of council money, they always used to say. And our thing would be like, yeah, but we're synonymous. People see the Wirral logo and it's, you know, it's good advertising, for want of a better phrase. So there was, a, you know, people complained so much that they pulled the sponsorship in 2014. And we've since had uh, home bargains. They sponsored us for three years. That was two relegations and a seventh place finish in the National League. Then we had B&M Waste Management and we got two promotions with them. And now we're sponsored by SR Energy, a huge global conglomerate from Ellesmere Port. So yeah, it's, you know, we'll always have a be on our bonnet. There was a thing a few years ago where there's a pub called the Prenton, our ground's called Prenton Park. And there's a pub literally on the corner opposite called the Prenton Park Pub. And we were in there once after a game. And there was a Liverpool game on the other half five kickoff. And we were singing Trammy songs we'd won. And the landlord said, uh, can you just be quiet? This is a Liverpool pub. And we all went, what? Are you joking? Mm-hmm. And they went, no. And so we were, Whoa. and it, it got like groundswell and it, people boycotted it in the end. And it ended up closing, having to change management and people like that's petty. But it was like, how can they have the goal? It's called the Prenton Park. Mm-hmm. You are 30 seconds from our home stand, And you say you're a Liverpool pub on a Saturday when it's full of Tramway fans. Mm-hmm. And they had, there was a Liverpool, there's a big, advertising hoarding on the side of that pub and Liverpool had it a few years ago and put their season ticket advert on there mm-hmm. literally facing our ground like you know less than 50 feet away from our stadium and that again some people said isn't that a bit petty for you to be annoyed and it's like well, yeah but we should be annoyed and another one you sent me off here on a tangent in Birkenhead city centre there's a Liverpool FC club shop in the pyramids shopping centre and like should we be annoyed about that like should do you know, it's one of them mm-hmm. Uh, you know they can they can have the shop there, but I can be angry about it. It doesn't stop that. You know, there's no Tramia Club shop in Birkenhead. The only club shop we've got is at the ground, and it's little things like that give us, you know, a bee in our bonnet. And then we you know we get told, why do you support them? They're terrible. And I said, like, well, yeah, we are, but you know, I go to the game, and it's that. It's, again, I've got great mates who are you know diehard Liverpool fans who go home in the way or did anyway before all this. But it's always those ones around it. It's the ones who don't go to the game. They wear the replica shirts. They, you know, they go to the pub with the replica shirt with Gerard or Suarez or, you know, Salah on the back. And they belittle and bemean you for support on a team that they almost like laugh at you for supporting them. But it's like, they'll never feel... Them being in the pub, seeing them win the Champions League a few years ago, will never be the same as what we felt at Wembley, you know, during those two promotions. Or even what, like, we felt at Blackpool away last year when we went on a little winning run. It's a completely different thing, isn't it? For mm-hmm. what Supporting a club for them being a fan and being a supporter of a club is are two hugely different things. Beautifully put. What would you say then have the, been the best of times for you personally as a supporter? Is it those two promotions in a row? Or do you hark back to a darkly romantic time when you were losing, but you were loving following them home and away? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because until like the last couple of years with the, the failed playoff 2016-17, we lost the playoff final. Then we, 2017-18, won the National League playoffs in that dramatic way. We had a man sent off after 47 seconds. 
all three subs used at half time. Connor Jennings, who'd been uh, with pneumonia, and apparently he's, you know, he's, he'd been said he might die two weeks earlier. He comes off the bench, sets up the winner for Norse. You know, and then again, the Newport game the following year, the 119th minute, Connor Jennings scores in front of us. Great times. But weirdly, we've got, we romanticised this time. And it was, we used to call it the playoff season amongst my group of friends who got a game. We didn't make the playoffs. On the final day, we had to go to Scunthorpe. This was 2008, 2009. They needed a draw and we needed to win. And whoever got the result got in the playoffs. And obviously they equalised in the 89th minute. You know, that, that's what happens, isn't it? That, that was just what happens. But we called that the playoff season. And we had, we started that year. Like I had some uni mates who we you know, supported other like lower league clubs. But I said, you need to come on these away days with us. And we had, it was one of those times where just that perfect season came together of all of us, of our group, the other friends. And we drew them in to these away days we were going on. And we called ourselves, it was an inside joke. We called ourselves the booze platoon. <laughs> and it was booze platoon. We were bladded. It wasn't even noon. That was our saying. And we used to go, that crew, all the local away. So, so we had crew, Oldham. There was so many great, like, you jump on the train, mm. you know, an hour on the train and you're there. And we had this great crew going and we had some, we actually had some results that we beat Oldham 2-0. And these people, you know, weren't Tramia fans, but they were just drawn in by, you know, we were going, we were having a drink, we were going to the game. And the atmosphere was great. And that was probably the last time. And that was when we, we finished seventh after the last game of the season, last minute, just, you know, disaster. And then we sacked Ronnie Moore and hired John Barnes. And that was the start of the real mm-hmm. swift decline of just, you know, going from, we went from a team always trying to get promoted out of League One to a team trying to stay in League One, to a team that eventually got relegated from League One, League Two in, in quick succession. And I think any fan of a lower league team like this, as much as you love the success and the, the last like two and a half years, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever get times like that again for what it meant, dragging ourselves up out of you know, the non-league, back into the Football League and then back-to-back promotions. You do always almost enjoy the days when you were absolutely terrible and what about bringing us to now then obviously the pandemic hurt Tranmere more than most clubs relegated on the points per game basis seemed fairly well set until as we speak defeated last night against Stevenage but I must point out the consolation in that defeat is a wonderful tweet that your own this is Tranmere account retweeted from Rovers official account 68 minutes the ball has just been cleared over the main stand and nobody was here to witness it once oh. in a lifetime that <laughs> It, like it really is that main stand is you know, it's not just the height of it like the roof is like angled up so it, you know it would take a real ah oh, i've always because i've always sat um since the stands been done up the cop has become the home end before it was the couch shed so we, i've always had a view of you know that happening and it's like, like it's been this mythical thing going it's impossible even if you tried even if you got like a soccer am like crossbar challenge type thing of right every player get there and you can kick the ball out your hands the velocity and you know the trajectory needed is almost impossible so that's probably my, yeah forget like go in the game and seeing the results seeing us win i'm so gutted that i missed that but um it's been a weird, a weird season obviously you said the, the ppg thing was oh, it was terrible because we'd, we'd, we'd been terrible all season, but we'd got our act together. We'd won three on the bounce, three away games mm. in incredible circumstances. I was lucky enough to go to all three. It was, we did Shrewsbury on a Tuesday, Accrington on a Saturday, and then Blackpool was the last game. And we won all three of them games. And injury time winner at Shrewsbury in front, of the, in front of the away support, like 96th minute, just the greatest. Went to Accrington, won, went to Blackpool, and really, then they're a good side. And it was one of those people that still now talk about that night at Blackpool. That, that's the last you know, proper game we've had with a full crowd. And it gives him goosebumps just thinking about it. And, mm. and then the points per game thing came in. And yeah, and it was, we're still, it's got done and dusted now. But of all the teams, of all, like, the only ones who suffered were. Macclesfield went down, but they were a basket case and they got points deducted. Stephen had survived as a result of that. So no one's been screwed there. Bolton and Southend were both like, you know, 20 points adrift. So they weren't going to stay up. Berry were expunged. We were the only club and the championship and everyone else played on. So Ipswich and Sunderland moaned that they missed out in the playoffs as a result of it. And Peterborough as well, didn't they miss out in the playoffs? But we got we were the only team to get relegated on it really because everyone else was either a done deal or you know their own fault. So that stung. And then we all thought you know we had, we amassed a really good squad. Michael Jackson, who was Mickey's assistant, obviously Mickey Man left in the summer mm. with our blessing. Went to Dundee United back home, 
um, his assistant, Michael Jackson, took over. And we all thought we amassed a really good squad. And it was just a disaster the start of the season. I don't know. One of those things where everything seemed right, but he was just not the right man for the job. We ended up making the change in October, I think. He's got sacked. He actually got sacked while we were recording the post-match pod. So we were able to do like Sky Sports breaking news. Like we did the equivalent of the yellow news ticker on, a, on an audio podcast, live news breaking. And then the assistant, Ian Dawes, took over with Andy Parkinson, who's a Trammy legend, who was the youth team manager. They took over and they t- took us on that run. I think we won six on a row in the league, seven in all competitions. Then Keith Hill came in and I think we won a few more. I think we won a nine. We won nine on the bounce. Then we had a bit of a rocky patch. And it's been a weird one with Keith Hill because the fans haven't, even still now in the great run we've just been on that ended last night, the fans have never really taken to him, strangely. And I don't know why. He's from Bolton and us and Bolton don't get on. That's a really nasty, like nasty rivalry. Um, But he's not a Bolton fan. He's a Man United fan, but there's just... You know, it's one of those things where some people don't can't. One of my best friends said that he went, I can't quite put my finger on why, but I just don't like him. And I don't think he's the long term solution as manager of the club. I'm just willing to give him a, you know, a chance. He, we've been on a great run, like you say. We'd won the last five in the league, six in all competitions before last night. We were up to third. We're still fourth. There's still, I think, 19 games to go. And we're, you know, four points off the top, which considering where we were back in October, I think fifth bottom. I'd have bitten your hand off a couple of months ago for where we are now. Maybe they were all just shell shot from the ball going over the main stand roof. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that I think you've just found out what the problem was. I hope Keith Hill said that in his post-match. <laughs> Keith Hill has always reminded me of someone that Eileen Grimshaw from Coronation Street would go out with. And as a, <laughs> as a viewer, you'd think, I don't think he's a good one, Eileen. Maybe, maybe that's just got across to the, yeah, the people of the Don't give him your bank details, Eileen. Don't. No, I met him on Aldi and Tay. He's a good guy. No, look. <laughs> What are you hiding under that flat cap? <laughs> You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. <laughs>